Now, last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the Facebook recording of the lesson if you missed it, but the priests, or the priest, Jehoiada, has now appointed officers over the house of the Lord, and it leads us into verse 19. So let's read that, 2 Kings eleven nineteen, And he, now that's Jehoiada the priest, took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings. This is little Joash. I fear that I may have called him Josiah in some of our past lessons because Josiah was also a boy king. So if I have put that aside, it's Joash, also known as Jehoash. Same person, just a different rendering of the name, even in the Old Testament. Now the presence of all these people around Joash shows us that he was well guarded. He was well attended on his way to the throne. And it says there in the middle of verse 19, and all the people of the land. Now don't get confused thinking every living soul from all of the borders of Israel came to that very event because it doesn't necessarily mean that all the people of the land. The word all is plain enough in people, but the word land is where the difference is. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, the word land is also translated as the word country and the word way. So it narrows down in scope. And that doesn't mean the entire landmass of the earth or even of Europe or Asia. So you have to look at the context in which it's written. Now this throne to which Joash was going was already his by declaration. He had already been declared as king, even while Athaliah was still alive and on the throne by her own evil doings. He'd been declared king by anointing as well. He was declared king, he was anointed king, but he hadn't physically occupied the throne. And so now, when he sits on the throne, as it says at the end of verse 19, and he sat on the throne of the kings. He's now physically occupied the throne that was his by declaration, that was his by anointing. And even though he was standing in the house of the Lord, he had already been proclaimed as king. So what was he doing? He was sitting on that which was already his by right. And yet in the house of the Lord, before he went to the house of the kings to sit on the throne, in the house of the Lord, Joash was just as much king as if he'd been sitting on the throne in the house of the king. Only now he physically occupies, occupies the place of his position. He sat on the throne of the kings. Now we're going to look at something in theological studies. This is called positional truth. And I hit on this every once in a while because we have new listeners and sometimes new faces in our auditorium who may not be familiar with it. 
Or you may have been taught on it and just forgot what it was. But it's very helpful. The same truth applies to Joash as applies to Christians. And what this truth, this positional truth teaches us is that we can already possess something just as Joash possessed the throne before we actually experience it. We can already possess it before we fully experience it. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now listen for the past tense verbs in here. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together... And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul writing to the church, therefore writing to us, is using past tense verbs to talk about some things that these Ephesian Christians and you and I, who are Christians, already possess, even though we have not fully experienced them. It's a great place to learn about positional truth. So I'll apply this to myself. I was dead in trespasses and sins. Just like Adam and Eve were whenever they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what had God told them? In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So when they ate... And this right away is a point of confusion for people who are trying to understand what the Bible meant when it said, thou shalt surely die. And they didn't physically die immediately upon eating the fruit like you would if you ate something with cyanide in it. Just drop down to the ground and that's it. So what did it mean? Well, first of all, they were now dead in trespasses and sins. They ate of that tree. God said not to do it. Now they were dead. They were spiritually dead. They were cut off from God spiritually. Secondly, although their bodies did not immediately die, positionally they were dead because they were dead in trespasses and sin just like me. I haven't physically died yet, but I was dead in trespasses and sins before I trusted in Christ for my salvation. Every person is. There's an example, and I think I've shared it before. The last time I taught the creation to Christ, which is very similar to what the pastor teaches now, the Genesis to Jesus. In fact, the creation to Christ was the, the uh, lesson plan that was used, and it's, it's wonderful. And so when I taught on this, I was at a church where out in the front we had some beautiful fotinia bushes. And if you know what a fotinia bush is, they're hardy, they're tough, and they have leaves that have a little point on the end of them. So it would discourage some burglar from hiding inside one, waiting for us to leave, and and uh, it takes up a lot of space, but... 
I thought, okay, I'm going to use this Fatinia bush to teach this example about how you can be dead but still look like you're alive. So I cut a piece, a little twig off of that Fatinia bush, and it had several leaves on it. And I set it up here on my pulpit and left it there. So then the first Sunday I taught on it, I said, now I want you all to look at this. It's just as green and red as it was when I cut it off of the bush. We're going to leave it here. So the next week when we came back, I picked it up, and it didn't look as good as it did the week before. Do you know why? Because immediately after I cut it off there and set it on this pulpit at that church, it was cut off from its source of life. It appeared to be alive, but it was headed toward decomposition. That's, that's what we are. We appear to be alive, and we are physically, but every one of us is headed toward death. That's just the way it is. That's the wages of sin. Well, the wages of me cutting that fotinia twig off of its source of life was that it was dying and would die. It was dead already. It just didn't look like it. Well, about three or four weeks later, that thing was brown and shriveled up. And one of the elders in the church, he, I think he had forgotten the purpose of it being up there. So I looked for it, and I didn't see it. And I said, has anybody seen the little twig that I had up here? And Brother Jimmy, he was a sweet man, and he said, he said, Brother, I, I threw that away the other day when we cleaned the church. And I said, that's okay. And I was going to use it for this purpose. Well, then he walked out the back of the church door, and I thought, well, I hope he's not offended. And he came back in, and he had uprooted one of my beautiful vinca flowers that I planted out in the garden and brought it to me. And I just laughed, and his heart was good. He meant well. And so I, I had to put it up there and start over. But the point of that was to show that as soon as I cut that twig off there, even though it wasn't apparent at that moment, that twig was going to look horrible because it was dead. And you would know it in a few weeks after all the moisture went out of it and it became what it was, just a bunch of dead leaves and a twig with no water in them. Now, in the Ephesian verse, it says that I was quickened. I was made alive in Christ, I was made alive from being dead in trespasses and sins. And after I was quickened, I will still be raised up. So I was dead, I was quickened, but I have to be raised up again. So what does that mean? I've got to die so I can be raised up physically. And that's what's going to happen in the resurrection or in the rapture if I'm here when Jesus comes is that I will receive a new body either way. That old one will die. That old one will be evidently dead. And that hasn't happened yet. But the Apostle Paul was not lying when he said, God hath, in the past tense, raised me up. Why is that? Because positionally, I've been raised from the dead. Already, positionally. I will experience that resurrection, that raising from the dead physically in the future when Jesus 
gathers his elect. Paul was also not lying when he wrote in the past tense that I was made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now you're looking at me, that's pretty good evidence I have not gone to be with the Lord yet. And even though I haven't died, even though I haven't gone to be with the Lord yet, my position in heavenly places in Christ Jesus is just as sure as if I were already there. I'm not waiting to possess it by right. It's already mine. I'm waiting to experience what I already possess. It's already mine. You know, the term layaway is used to describe merchandise for which a person has paid a deposit to the merchant. And the agreement is that the merchant will hold that merchandise until the customer finishes the payment and takes possession of it in the future. Well, salvation is not exactly layaway because our, the purchase price has been fully paid already, not a deposit. That would help a lot of people understand salvation if they understood that their definition of salvation is that it's on layaway and that there's only been a deposit put down so they have to come back here and be baptized or come down here and do some sort of religious rite and do good works and all of that to keep the payment going. And uh, that's not what salvation is at all. But like that merchandise, even when it is fully paid for, the redemption of our bodies is the time when we will experience physically those heavenly places in Christ Jesus will we'll be in experience that which we once expected. We expect now, we will experience then. But in both cases, that salvation is ours. Those heavenly places in Christ Jesus are where we are already seated positionally. If somebody, particularly religious people, who believe you can be saved and then lose your salvation, they have the wrong concept of salvation. If people will understand and embrace positional truth, then they'll be less likely to believe they can lose their salvation. Joash's position as king was just as sure as if he were already seated on that throne, even before he sat on the throne. And now he gets to experience the throne physically, not just positionally. And let's look at verse 20. And all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was in quiet, and they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. Now those three phrases in that sentence don't seem to go together at all. At least if you define the words the way we do in our vernacular. The word rejoice there, it means glad. The people were glad. Now you know, contrary to the popular belief about rejoicing in the word rejoiced, it does not always mean an outward expression of gladness. In fact, listen to how this Hebrew word was first used in the Bible. Listen for the word glad instead of rejoiced. It's in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14. Exodus 4 and verse 14 where Moses is arguing with God and losing, 
about how he's not adequate and he doesn't know how to speak and all of that. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. Now, where was Aaron glad? In his heart. Whether anyone else noticed it or not, he was glad in his heart, in his inner man. And this kind of rejoicing is not so much outward as it is inward. And this brings me to a, a pet peeve I have in, I have experienced in some churches. And I'm glad we don't do this here, thankful. But in some churches, the song leader stops during the middle of the hymn and scolds the people who aren't smiling big enough. You ever had that happen? You're like... We're singing, Nearer My God to Thee. This is a solemn song. It's speaking to my heart right now. I don't have a big grin. I'm filled with joy and assurance on the inside. And then some sort of comment is made by the song leader, or perhaps it's the pastor who does it, and says, Do you have the joy of the Lord today? Show it on your faces as though the joy of the Lord is dependent on whether you have a smile. It's not. I've seen some of the fakest smiles in my life in church, at work, and even at family reunions. Anybody can push a smile out there. That doesn't mean they do or don't have the joy of the Lord on the inside. Listen, the joy I have doesn't usually result in a smile. Maybe that surprises you. Sometimes that joy brings peace, assurance, even a tear that you don't see. And you're not going to hear me whooping and hollering up and down the aisle, distracting you and attracting attention to myself. The point is, people rejoice differently, don't they? Don't we? Some are animated and overflowing with expression. Others are reserved Outwardly, even though on the inside, if you could just see it in their inner man, they're overflowing with joy. And you'll understand that the rejoicing Israel did in our text there in verse 20, that it was not a continual outward rejoicing, but one that continued in the hearts Let's look at the next word of interest and you'll understand that further. It said, and the city was in quiet. So we just saw that they're rejoicing. And you may be saying, wait a minute, how could that be? They're rejoicing, but the city is in quiet. How can people rejoice and be quiet at the same time? Well, we just talked about it, didn't we? And the word quiet here doesn't mean silence. It's translated as the word rest more than any other word in the Old Testament. More times, more often than not, this Hebrew word is translated as the word rest rather than quiet. That doesn't mean there's not quiet or silence, but it means that's not the, the focus. The focus here is rest. The first use of that Hebrew word is in Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. 
And it helps us understand what it means for the city to be in quiet. It says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. It was quiet from war. They rejoiced in their rest. Now let that sink in. You rejoice in your rest. The next time you see someone without a smile or without a sound, they may be rejoicing in their rest in the Lord. Don't disturb it. And at the same time, if you see someone's rejoicing overflow to their outward man and they're expressing it in, in whatever they're doing, don't rain on their rejoicing either. Let them rejoice. I remember talking to Brother Doug when he was a young Christian and telling him, You be Doug. Don't you ever lose that zeal for the Lord. And Doug will express himself differently than Luke will or than I will or than Brother Kenneth. We all have different ways, but we can all rejoice, be the same on the inside, even though the outside looks differently. So that may help you piece these two phrases together in verse 20. And then the last part of verse 20 says, And they slew Athaliah with the sword, Beside the king's house. Now how about that? They rejoiced, they were quiet, and they did a killing. All in one, that all went together. They rejoiced because they slew a wicked queen. Now, this seems a little awkward to slay a queen while you're rejoicing and while there's quiet in the land. But what it tells us, and I think this is very important, is that Part of their rejoicing was that evil was being put away. Now, you ought to rejoice at that, that evil is put away. There will come a day when all the evil will be finally judged. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And don't you think for a moment that we're going to be crying, saying, oh, it's just so terrible. Is the judgment and justice of God terrible? Not in that way. It's a wonderful thing because it cleanses from sin. That's what happened with Jesus on the cross. Now, do when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, do we go around saying, oh, it's just so terrible. Oh, I wish he didn't have to die. Well, then you'd go to hell. You wouldn't have an advocate. You wouldn't have a way to be saved. And although the physical act of, of torturing him and hanging him on the cross and him dying as he did was to the eye an awful thing to behold. To the heart, it's our rejoicing. We sing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We rejoice that he did die for our sins. Because evil was judged. It was put away as far as our account goes. And we don't have to die for it. Putting away evil requires drastic measures just like it did here. But in those drastic measures, there should be rejoicing. That doesn't mean we run around hooping and hollering with our hands up saying, yes, but there should be gladness in our heart. Now, you tell me there's not gladness and relief in a person's heart when a serial killer is caught. He sure is. There's people up right now in Idaho who are hoping somewhere in that town of Moscow that they can find this 
person who stabbed those four people to death at a college campus. They're on edge. And when that man or that woman, whoever it is, is found, there is going to be relief, rest. There's going to be a rejoicing, not like the kind we have when, when a baby is born, but the kind we have when evil is put away. Listen to Psalm chapter 58 and verse 6. Because it may be hard to understand how we can rejoice when evil is put away. Psalm 58, 6, the psalmist wrote, Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. And then you skip down to verse 10. It says, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So not only is it appropriate to rejoice when evil is put away, it's written in the psalm that we shall rejoice. Same Hebrew word as in our text. We shall rejoice at the vengeance God takes on the wicked. Verse 21. Seven years old was Jehoash. Now remember that's Joash, same person. When he began to reign. And this is a reminder that he was not a full grown king, but he was still a king. The throne was his, but to execute the duties that were necessary to be a good king would cause him to need help from capable, faithful men until he reached maturity. And even after that, he would continue to need wisdom as his companion and guide. He would need to be surrounded by those who were wise in the scriptures and also be devoted to the word of God. And this is a reminder to us also that although we've received salvation and are now the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, we are also in constant need of supervision and guidance from the scriptures, from those who teach the scriptures. Although we're adults in the body, many of us are very adult, <laughs> but we're still children in the faith. And it's by the use of milk and strong meat, as Paul wrote, that we're able to live the Christian life. We learn from pastors from teachers, Christian parents, Christian mentors, and so forth. That's who we should learn from. And this is going to be the case for Joash as well. I read this morning a very sad article, but at the same time, I had some other thoughts about it. A particular pastor in a church in Nashville, Tennessee, had been a church leader for 30 years in a Baptist denomination. And he just said, I'm done with it. And he went and made his own little church. And it's, I forget what the name of it is, but basically they garden. They sit down and he smokes a pipe and uh, someone else sits across from him and they gather around a fire outside. And then when they're, they do a little talk about something Jesus said, and then they go garden. Now that's, what it turned into. Not a Bible study. In fact, 
reading further into the article, he said, people are tired of the way churches are doing now. You know, it's come to church and behave a certain way and money in the plate and attendance required and all of that. And I thought to myself, on one hand, it's very sad. But on another hand, if that's all that church was doing, shut it down anyway. At no time did I hear or read of this man saying that all he wanted to ever do as a pastor is teach people the Bible, evangelize sinners, and build up the saints in the faith. That's all he ever wanted to do. He never said that. He had all the criticisms. And if you think about it, if he led a church for 30 years and that's what they were doing, that's his fault. And that's the people's fault there who put up with it. And spiritual people are going to be drawn to the teaching of God's Word. They're not going to hang around in a place like that. If they go to a church like the one he pastored, and in a few weeks they don't know more about the Bible than they did when they started, they're gone. They're going somewhere else where they can be fed, and they should. But what that church needed, what every church needs, is for milk, the basic principles of the oracles of God, the gospel, to be taught over and over again. And then strong meat, that's the doctrine that proceeds off of the gospel, that has the gospel as its very root to be taught so people understand their Bibles, so they can help their own families and their friends and their co-workers and the stranger in the land to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to answer those questions people have about living the Christian life. And Joash needed that and so do we. Now let's look in chapter 12, verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign and 40 years, 40, reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. You may remember that Joash's father was King Ahaziah. He was a wicked king. And he had been killed in battle by Jehu. Jehu got a little bit carried away, a lot carried away, and he just started killing right and left. And Joash's mother, Zebiah, is introduced here, and we don't read another word about her in the Bible as far as I can tell. I believe she was, now this is not dogmatic here, but this is my view. I believe she was probably killed by Athaliah, by her warriors, after Joash's aunt hid him. She knew who Joash was, and she couldn't find him. And so I suspect there was a diligent search and probably the interrogation of a lot of people who were suspected of hiding any of the seed royal, any of those children who could have inherited the throne. You see, Athaliah's son, Ahaziah, had been killed, and she didn't want anyone else over that throne. She probably coveted it even while her son was on it. But we don't know for sure what happened to Zebiah. Now let's look in verse 2. And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Well, I like that. This tells us what happens when a child and then adult 
obeys the word of God taught to him by the man of God. He does that which is right in the sight of the Lord. You can't help it. If you're being taught by the man of God and you obey what the man of God teaches and the man of God is teaching you what God's word says, you can't help but do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Do we displease God when we obey his word or when we disobey it? Well, that's easy, isn't it? When we disobey it. And that's what the flesh wants to do. The man of God teaches the word of God to the child of God, and the child of God obeys the word of God taught to him by the man of God. That's how it's supposed to go. And if somebody's looking for a secret to living a fulfilling life, a holy life, there it is, and it's not a secret. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now this is done when the child is old enough to learn. Let's follow this. When they're babies, they learn by experience that godly parents love them, protect them, feed them, keep them warm, change their diapers. I got a kick out of my daughter. They had all the girls and grandkids over yesterday. And the day before, my daughter was over with my grandbaby, my newest one. She's three months old. And the most tactful way I can say it is that little one had a blowout. So my daughter came in there with me. And she's changed hundreds of diapers by now. And she started gagging. And I got tickled. I said, are you about to throw up? And apparently she and her husband both do that whenever there's a bad situation such as the one that happened. And I just got tickled at it. But you know what? She still loves that little one enough to do it anyway, even though it makes her sick at her stomach. She does it anyway. And those little ones learn to trust us. And when they get old enough to walk and or stumble first and then walk and run, they run to us when they're scared, don't they? They don't go hug an oak tree. They come to mom and dad when they're scared. They long for our embrace whenever they're sad. And this foundation of love and trust puts Christian parents in the perfect place to instruct their children. Because the trust is already there. And as soon as they're old enough to understand, then we are to teach them to obey, to respect, to love, to work, and all within the context of God's Word. Not according to our own ideas, but according to the context of God's Word. And it's then we learn about the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child. And we have to use the rod of correction. And so the, that pain begins not just for them but for us as well. And because they are fragile, we build them up in the Lord. We praise them for the good decisions they make and the good works they do. We have to do it both ways or it doesn't work out well. And I want you to imagine little Joash here. He was a baby. He was an infant. At the time, he was on the hit list. 
Now, how many infants have ever been on the hit list? Well, we know in King Herod's time, any of them who were under two were on the hit list, weren't they? Jesus included. But Joash was an orphan. His mother was nowhere to be found. Zebiah, we don't know what happened to her. I do suspect she was killed. So I'm assuming she was dead. His father had been slain just as well. He was evil. And his grandmother was the wicked Athaliah. Now you would think if mom and dad are gone, we'll just go to grandma's. You wouldn't want to drop that little boy off at Athaliah's house. He'd be dead. So who was it who loved and fed and protected and clothed and instructed Joash? It was Jehoiada the priest, the man of God. And probably those who helped him. I'm sure they had a wet nurse to nurse the child and, and all those things that go with it. But in this case, it was much better to have the man of God raising Joash than a wicked father or grandmother. And this brings us to a point worth learning. Wicked parents raise broken children. And these broken children become broken adults, often turning to drugs, crime, suicide, immoral behavior, leading unfruitful, ungodly lives. I've worked in law enforcement system for almost 35 years, and I've seen the damage, and it is heartbreaking. It's hard enough to raise them in a godly home and to see them go the right way because just like you and I didn't make good decisions all the time, our children won't either. But in all that darkness, I've seen a few wonderful Christian people step into the life of broken, orphan, wounded children just like Joash, take them in as their own, love them, make them feel safe, raise them in godly homes. And Jehoiada is one of those people I admire. He stepped up to the plate. You know how easy it would have been for him to run from this, to say, hey, hey, wait a minute, don't, don't bring him here, man. Athaliah is on the war path. She's killing every one of the seed royal, and, and I don't want anything to do with hiding him. I, I value my life. He could have done that. And I'm sure most people would have understand, oh, we understand, we understand. You're just protecting yourself. But Jehoiada's protection was from the Lord. So he was up to the task to take Joash in and to be responsible for his upbringing, to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In verse 3, here we go. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Now let's fast forward here. Although he took the throne when he was seven, how long did he have it? Forty years. So he's a fully grown man. And during that 40 years, what did he not do? He didn't take away the high places where the people sacrificed and burnt incense. And as it has been in several cases before Joash... Though he did right in the sight of the Lord, it was what he failed to do. It was what he didn't do. Just like in Solomon's day. Under the things that are said about him, here's one of the negative things. 
when there was no house built unto the name of the Lord, the people sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. So you had two things wrong there. The house of the Lord had not yet been built, and the people and the high places had not been taken down. So the people still burn incense and sacrificed in those high places. In the books of Moses, particularly in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, but in those books, God consistently commanded his people to tear down the places of their enemies, the high places of their enemies where they worshiped. God commanded them not to worship other gods, but they were stiff-necked and they were disobedient and they did it anyway. And the evil thing the king allowed here is what the people did. And this was accomplished by simply doing nothing about it. They were doing evil and perhaps he reasoned within himself, hey, I'm not doing it. I'm not the one going there. That's their business. You know, he didn't have to burn incense in high places or sacrifices in high places, but he was still responsible for not putting an end to it. He was the king. And you contrast Joash's inaction, his failure to act, with the action of another king whom we will study in a few months, and that's Hezekiah. I'll read to you one passage from 2 Kings 18, verses 4 through 6. 2 Kings 18, verses 4 through 6. Speaking of Hezekiah, it says, He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. And we'll learn more about Hezekiah when we come to that passage. But I wanted us to see how close Joash and Solomon too. But here Joash came to being the kind of king who would have had such a worthy epitaph as Hezekiah. Because it said there wasn't a king that did like he did before or after him. He not only did that which was right in the sight of the Lord... But he tore down all those wicked places. All Joash had to do was remove the high places, the groves, and yes, even the brazen serpent Moses made. And that brazen serpent was used to teach a great lesson to the, in fact, it saved a bunch of lives, but it was used to teach a great lesson to the children of Israel who were being bitten by the serpent and dying, all they had to do was look upon that brazen serpent to be saved. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that's on the cross, and shall draw all men to me. Well, what happened when that brazen serpent that was supposed to be a type of Jesus Christ 
began being worshipped, it became an idol. It was no longer a type. It became an idol. And so Hezekiah got rid of it. He took them away. Joash let them be. And a good lesson for us here is that if we have the power to do so, we better make sure to remove the high places in our lives rather than letting them be. Your high places are not going to let you be just because you let them be. The devil's a roaring lion, and he doesn't sit around waiting for you to trip over his foot that he sticks out from his chair. The Bible says he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He uses your high places, your idols, to appeal to your flesh, and he persuades you to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Don't let them be like Joash did. Remove them like Hezekiah did. And with that, we'll close and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for those who came. Thank you for the good attention, those who tuned in as well. Lord, we miss the ones who are not here. And we pray that you would take the truth that's been taught today and put it in the hearts of your people. Because if we don't leave with it in our hearts and we don't meditate upon it and obey it, then we just came to a talk, to a speech, and missed out on a great opportunity. So help us not to do that, Lord, but to take seriously the truth of your word. In Jesus' name.